Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. Earlier this month, Las Vegas remembered one of the worst days in its history, the October 1 Harvest Musical shooting, where 61 people lost their lives. Who could have predicted what happened? Today, you'll meet futurist and author Rebecca Costa, who says we actually have the technology to predict that kind of mass shooting right now. But can it be used to prevent a madman like Stephen Paddock? We will ask Rebecca. In the second half hour... Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today, you'll meet one of the best baseball writers in America, Moss Klein, who covered the New York Yankees as the beat writer for the Newark Star-Ledger for 17 seasons. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's go tonight. Let's go tonight. Let's go to Vegas. We'll stay up all night. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's get away. Everybody talks about looking forward. Today we're going to talk about working backwards and how really it's a practice that can be applied to achieving all sorts of goals. And with us is Rebecca Costa, and I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. She's an American sociobiologist and futurist. I love this sort of subject. She's known as the preeminent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation and has worked for all the big companies, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. She's got a great book called The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse. It's an international bestseller. According to you, uh, things like climate change, which we talk about, tariff wars, terrorism, all these sort of things remain uns- unsolved. And the reason they remain unsolved is because they're similar. How do you mean that? You know, we tend to treat these crises like COVID or the subprime mortgage collapse and other kinds of uh, crises, we, we tend to treat them uh, as though they're very unique, you know, and, uh, and, and even though we understand to some extent that historically they're not unique, um, what we don't understand is even in current times, they share similarities, these crises and how we respond to them uh, share certain similar characteristics. And so from a sociobiological standpoint um, uh, and an analytic standpoint, we can see that there's a, a pattern to the crises, and there's a pattern to how humans respond. Is this so, sort of uh, like the old, uh, you know, Star Trek thing where Mr. Spock used to say, like, you know, that's not logical? Is that what happens to us? Our emotions get in the way sometimes. Well, Ed, Edward Wilson, the great naturalist out of Harvard University, uh, I thought he put it more succinctly than I've ever heard anyone else put it. He said, uh, "We have Paleolithic emotions." Uh, we have uh, medieval institutions and godlike technology. And that is our current situation. When you mix up the cocktail of prehistoric emotions with medieval institutions and godlike technology, you wind up with kind of a crazy scenario where uh, we're not always logical and we don't, and even though we're blessed, with uh, a third of our brain being the frontal cortex that is able to do scenarios and plan ahead and see what the consequences of our actions will be, we don't always abide by that. 
and you used climate change as an example. Uh, we have, you know, computers and predictive analytic models and all of that, but we still hang on to um, our beliefs. And, and many people do not believe climate change is occurring. And, and even if they do believe it's occurring, they may not believe that human activity has, had, ha, has a hand in it. Now, those are two different things. They may, those cells may touch in our brains, but they're two different things. There are people that don't believe it's happening, and then there are those that believe it is happening, but humans don't have any control over it, can't do anything about it. Uh, and then there are those that believe it's happening and humans have had direct involvement and are causing it, causing it to worsen or are even the source of climate change. So you've got different belief systems going on in there, and they're practically at a religious level. When you think about it, you know, people get very passionate. I mean, you bring up these subjects, you know, politics, climate change, uh, you know, the federal deficit. You bring any of these things up and you're sure to have an argument at your dinner table. No question. But, you know, I, I think of the environmental scientist of Bjorn Lomborg who kind of says the same thing. He goes, people get into the, the emotion takes over instead of, okay, you got to look at these problems of what they are, what you can do about it, and then what makes the most sense. Because sometimes you can't completely solve something, but you can't completely ignore it either. Is that kind of what you're talking about where you kind of have to take some of this emotion out of it to really be able to uh, analyze it uh, honestly? Well, that's easier said than done, and particularly at this particular time frame, uh, we have computers and computer models. When you think about it, you know, computers don't have emotions. We can't even inject emotions uh, into them. Uh, computers will look at the data, the data only, and then, you know, uh, tell us what the data reflects. And then humans still have to make a decision about whether to act on that data or whether to believe the data. Uh, and, and so that's where things sort of begin to break down. But you must remember, we will never be robots. We're biological in nature. And, and you know, we've come a long way in millions and millions of years of human evolution. But we, to, to pretend that those prehistoric emotions uh, that we inherited through our DNA uh, as a survival mechanism don't exist is, just to deny reality, you know, um, yeah. many times, can I give you an, let me give you a, a funny example, right? I, I was talking to a CEO of a global corporation, uh, very, very uh, smart and talented individual. I um, consult with a number of, of global uh, concerns. And he said, you know, I, it's always a joy to talk to you, Rebecca, but I'm not really driven by emotions at all. You know, facts are facts. And I make all my decisions based on facts. And I, and I was sitting and I was thinking about how to really make him connect with emotions. And I, and I asked him, you know, do you ever do any grocery shopping? And he, he laughed and he said, yeah, actually, my wife and I, we take turns shop, uh, doing our grocery shopping because it can get pretty boring. And I said, well, I'm going to do you a really big favor. I know you like to save time. And I don't want you wasting your time going up and down all the aisles of the grocery store getting your groceries anymore. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, when ne the next time you go to the grocery store, I want you to grab a cart and go straight to the checkout line where people are waiting to pay for their groceries. And I want you to shop out of the carts because they, they have everything you want, cereal, milk, eggs. Everything you're going to buy is already in their carts. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, why not? They haven't paid for it. It doesn't belong to them. Take the stuff out of their carts. And, and I said, what do you suppose would happen? He said, I'd probably get punched in the face. And, and he said, they'd call the manager. And I said, what's the manager going to do? They haven't paid for it. They don't own the cart. They don't own the food in the cart. Said so you could shop out of anybody's cart. 
So, so just do that. It'll save you a lot of time. And, and, and he said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, why do you suppose it would, it would create such a, a, a disturbance to the point where people would violently potentially attack you for removing things from a cart and, and removing things that don't belong to them? I said, that's not logical. And he said, yep, yep, I understand what you're saying. And I said, the reason is because that cart is our territory and we are designed by nature to defend our territory. Sometimes that's our cubicle at work. Sometimes it's our job, right? Sometimes it's someone coming too close to our house, coming into our yard, right? You, you, you go, what are you doing in my yard? Maybe they're not doing anything. Maybe they're just standing there. Yeah. But you don't want them on your lawn. You know, that's your territory. And why is that? It's because nature has designed us so that we, you know, in the, in the wild, we, we, we specked out a territory that had everything that our troop, our group needed to survive, water, food, shelter. And so we needed to defend that territory in order to assure that our genes would continue to be perpetuated. And so in modern times, we still are very territorial, very, very, very conscious of territory, but it's now spun up into different kinds of territory, which are maybe your job, your cubicle, your lawn, your grocery cart with food that doesn't belong to you. More with sociobiologist, futurist, and author Rebecca Costa in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. I'm Bobby Brooks Wilson, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. This is an urgent health notice all residents suffering from back pain. You may qualify for a pain-relieving back brace covered by Medicare. Simply call the Health Alert Hotline now. The Health Alert Hotline is your back brace company. These specialized braces have been thoroughly tested for pain relief. Call us toll-free right now to determine your eligibility. Don't wait. The deadline is fast approaching. The call just takes a few minutes, and we will handle all of the Medicare paperwork. Back braces have helped thousands of people just like you get relief from their back pain and return to living their lives to the fullest, enjoying activities they thought they might never be able to experience again. Find out if you're eligible to receive a pain-relieving back brace. Make sure to have your Medicare card ready when you call. Call us right now. 800-419-1964-800-419-1964-800-419-1964-800-419-1964. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products, professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to futurist Rebecca Costa, author of The Watchman's Rattle and On the Verge. Now, let me ask you about computer models because, okay, we talk about we, we, a lot of people don't want to uh, believe those things as computer models, but computer models can be wrong. So how do you, or sometimes things change, there could be something that, you know, you, you're basing it on past performance and something different happens. So how do you, how do you deal with that part if something different happens for whatever reason that we don't even know? Well, look, uh, we don't have any choice but to rely on computer models because certainly computer models can look at billions and billions and billions of data points and are far more accurate than the human brain. As an example, you know, I just went out the other day and my neighbor said, hey, you know, you should you should put a jacket on. It's going to get windy at, at the ocean. And And I walked in and what did I do? I said, Alexa, what's the forecast for the beach? Right? My my neighbor just told me it was going to be windy, but I but Alexa said, "Oh, winds, you know, winds of 30 miles an hour at 6 p.m." She gave me the exact time it was going to get windy. Well, this was like 2 in the afternoon. And I went, oh, "I don't need a jacket." And I went out and sure enough there wasn't any wind until later it picked up. You know, he was he was partially right. It was going to get windy, but Alexa was more right. It wasn't going to get windy till 6 p.m. So who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your neighbor who says, you know, it might rain? Or are you going to go in and you're going to ask your smart speaker? Is there a possibility that we depend on these machines and computers so much that if for some reason, you know, there's an electrical, uh, electrical stop and you, know, and you don't have that, that we don't know how to think properly anymore? Or is that just crazy? No, I, I, I don't. I don't spend my time worrying about those kinds of things. I mean, I, I think there are much more likely scenarios that we abuse machines than we have some electromagnetic field that knocks everything out and we can't count change at the grocery store anymore. I mean, I, I don't, I just, yeah, that that's not likely to happen. The human brain is continuing to evolve. It's just that we're evolving a dependence on machines to analyze billions and billions of points of data. And we have to understand that there's great benefits to that. We're becoming, you know, we just launched the GOES satellites last year uh, into outer space, and I'm enough of a nerd that I threw a party for that. You know, (laughs) other people throw gender reveal parties. I throw, hey, we're launching a new satellite. It's going to give us three (laughs) times the weather resolution, you know. Come on over. We'll We'll watch the launch together. The, the fact is that three times the, the higher weather resolution, you can't imagine the impact that has on the accuracy at which we can forecast now the, tra- the tracking of dangerous storms, tornadoes, flooding, and we can get people out faster. You know, I, I live on the, the coast of, of Oregon. And, you know, it used to be they said, look, if a tsunami hits, you know, if the uh, Cascadia uh, earthquake occurs and the shift occurs, you know, you're not going to have any time. Everybody on the Oregon coast dies. And then when I formally moved here, I had a second home. And when I formally moved here, they said, we can give you five minutes notice. Well, five minutes isn't really a lot to get out. You know, I'm not going to, I probably would die. But every year it's gotten a little bit better. Yeah. Now it's up to seven minutes. Now it's getting, now, you know, it's, it's getting close to 10 minutes. That might give you a run for your money. Every year we get better and better. 
at being able to forewarn people, and we get better and better at seeing what the future consequence of something might be. Yeah, and it also puts a little responsibility on us, too, because like you say, if we can get to a point where we have a half-hour warning or an hour warning, what have you, then we've got to, as a society, figure out, okay, we got to we have to figure a way where everybody can get out of here because if everybody gets on the freeways at the same time, they all stop each other, uh, that's a problem, too. So we kind of have the, a responsibility as we get better with this to how we're going to deal with it as a society. Well, you hit the hammer, you hit the nail on the, on the head, because this sea change does not come without a tremendous responsibility and a major change in social policy, particularly our judicial system and our law enforcement system. And I'm going to give you a specific example in Las Vegas. So everyone remembers Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter, right, who shot into a, a sure. crowd of concert goers. Right? It was a great tragedy. But every time we have a mass shooting, you'll notice that the news media, right, and the FBI and, the, and, and all of the, the law enforcement groups start working backwards. Where was he before the shooting started? What were his activities? And in Stephen Paddock's particular case, I, I became fascinated, fascinated by it and started working backwards and saying, what signs did we have? that he was reaching criticality. And it turns out there were 80 data points that indicated that he was in the 99 percentile of committing a mass violent act. And they were things like, you know, six months before, uh, somebody had put him on diazepam. And diazepam is not a prescription you should ever give anybody who has a family history of violent sociopaths. And his father, right, was a violent sociopath. So he had put, been put on a prescription medication that would have indicated that he sent his lifelong partner away to the Philippines, gave her $50,000 and told her not to come back. He started buying tracer rounds. He, he moved 26 times before this event. All these things, you know, 80 points that I can point to said this man was moving to, towards some critical event. But let's say... You know, that, the, that law enforcement, who respects me, because I'm a, I'm a data a- analytics gal. Let's say I took all those, eight, eight, those, those points. Let's say I didn't invade his privacy. These were all public records, mm-hmm. and I accessed them, and I went to law enforcement, and I said, this guy is absolutely in the 99 percentile of committing a dangerous act. We don't live in that world because we live in the world where Stephen Paddock could have gone into that hotel room, cracked that window, pointed the gun at the concert goers and say, you know what, I'm not going to do it. And then packed up his guns and gone home. We live in a world where you could change your mind up to the last minute. We don't have a judicial system that can act on the predictive data that we have. Rebecca Costa, fascinating stuff. We got to have you on again. This is incredible. Uh, if people want to read more about what you're doing and so forth, where can they go? They can go to my website, which is RebeccaCosta.com, R E B E C C A C O S T A.com. And there are two books that they should grab. We, we try to, you know, we don't make any profit on the books, but we want people to have this information. And that's the Watchman's Rattle and On the Verge, both are available on Amazon, but we hope that you'll order them off our website because you'll get them a lot quicker and a lot cheaper. 
once you get them to, you won't be able to put them down. This is fascinating stuff. Rebecca, let's have you on again. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. This week's sports calendar features the World Series. But with this weird season, some are questioning the validity of this championship. You know, the baseball owners were hoping to see something like a Yankee Dodger series, but they only got half of what they wanted. Which makes us go back in time, today's conversation, looking at one of the most fascinating periods in all of sports, the Yankees, under the ownership of George Steinbrenner. And who better to tell us about that than a sports writer who saw most of those wild seasons, former beat writer from the Newark Star-Ledger, Moss Klein. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manji. They were there when history was made. Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Tours. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right, down the line, it may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! Go crazy! Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports and Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. A lot of sports fans aren't thrilled with this year's COVID-shortened baseball season. They say the game has gotten boring, driven by a plethora of statistical measures. But back when the Yankees played, under their eccentric owner, George Steinbrenner, they were anything but dull. If there's a sports franchise that is recognized everywhere around the world, the definitive sports American franchise, it's got to be the New York Yankees. And we're honored to have Moss Klein, who covered the Yankees from 1976 all the way through 1992. Well, Moss, is there a special thrill being in Yankee Stadium and and knowing every year that you're going to be covering a team that basically everybody in the world is going to be looking at? Oh, it was great. It was the most enjoyable job because there were just so many characters year after year you never had to look too hard for coming up with a story. And, of course, George Steinbrenner was always there, you know, getting everything going. So it was it was day after day of constant entertainment. So let's start in the owner's box. Yeah, I, I would imagine the great thing about Steinbrenner is there was always something to write about, even though it was somewhat chaotic for the guys on the team. Oh, that's for sure. It was constant chaos. And for the, for the writers, it was, you know, a few headaches along the way, but a lot of, a lot of fun. You never had to look around to, to come up with a story. It was always the stories would just come to you. I mean, Steinbrenner was impulsive, irrational, a lot of times kind of insane, but he was, he was fun because it was, there was always something he was doing. He was making you know, trouble with players. He was 
you know, going after the commissioner. He was just, there was always something going on. It, it never really stopped. He was, I used to say that he was like the, the ringmaster of this, you know, circus that just went on year after year. And it was it was very entertaining. Yeah, he he really enjoyed the attention. He, it seems like he almost even enjoyed the negative attention. He, he it's like a little kid screaming and yelling because he wants to be looked at, and it always kind of felt that way. Even though he had built uh, a number of these times, very good teams. Yeah. Oh, he he definitely wanted the attention. He wanted you know the credit for anything that happened, or he didn't want to be blamed for stuff. He we used to talk about the writers would say this was examples of. Steinbrenner's revisionist history because he would do something or say something and then if it didn't work out six weeks later he'd be saying oh that was a uh, general manager's idea or that was the manager's idea and I remember there was one year all the writers were in Lou Pinello's office after a game and I guess this was like 1986 and he gets a call from Steinbrenner while the writers were all in there and we could hear Steinbrenner saying over the over the phone I just won you the pennant. I got Steve Trout. Well, Steve <laughs> Trout, who had been fine pitching for the Cubs, was was just a disaster with the Yankees, primarily because he couldn't take the Yankee Steinbrenner New York pressure, and it was just he just got worse and worse and worse. And several weeks later, even though every writer had heard, I just won you the pennant. I got you Steve Trout. Steinbrenner was blaming everybody else in the organization for getting Steve Trout. So that was that was just the way he did things. There were old timers that remember Ruth, Garrick, DiMaggio, that whole thing, you know, where they would win and win, and they were this proud franchise. Did it bug some of those people that were still around? Like, even though even winning like this, that it just was kind of uh, unseemly. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if you were around it, as I said before, it was really like entertaining more than you know. I mean, some of the times it would. Players, you know, hated the way Steinbrenner would be critical of them. But the one who I think captured the feeling the best was Greg Nettles, who was really sharp with his one-liners and in addition to being a great third baseman. Because one time he said, you know, some kids want to grow up to join the circus and other kids want to grow up to be Major League Baseball players. He said, I've been lucky. I've done both. So that was what it was. It was like, you know, the circus coming to town. Whenever the Yankees showed up, there would be, Crowds would be bigger. The media would be more. It would just be everyone wanted to see this, you know, the, this the circus in action. And they had players who, especially in the late seventies, I used to say they were they were characters with character. I mean, these were guys who knew how to win, and they were able to deal with all the Steinbrenner craziness and still have fun. And you know, I'm talking about you know Thurman Munson, Lou Pinella, Goose Gossage, of course, Catfish Hunter. It, it was it was one after another. There were guys who knew what was coming and knew how to deal with it and were kind of amazed at some of the goings-on with Steinbrenner and, and, and Billy and, of course, Reggie Jackson. Constant chaos and constant fun. Well, you know, you mentioned Reggie Jackson. I almost wonder if if it made him better, you know, because you think after the time with the A's that he would have liked to have gone to a nice, stable franchise where he could have played the next 10 years, won a few MVPs. But no, he went. He goes to New York. He's constantly he's battling Martin. He's battling Steinbrenner and what have you. But he built up his legacy there. Right. Oh, definitely, Reggie. I always said Reggie just thrives on, on the pressure. If uh, if it was a big moment in the game, a big obviously the World Series, Reggie was at his best. And so I think that he 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 loved being put on the spot. He loved being the center of attention. He was. He was a fascinating character. He was amazingly egotistical, but that's that's what 
got him going. He, you know, the, the other players, you know, he had had his years in Oakland, then he wound up in Baltimore for that one year when Finley was unloading players. And then when he came to the Yankees, it was like, as you said, he, he wanted this, this pressure. You know, he, there was the one big stage, the place where they'll name a candy bar after me, and they did. He just loved it. I mean, he, you know, he would, uh, if, if he was playing in some dreary place on a, you know, second division team, he wouldn't, he, I don't think he would have done what, what he did. It was just amazing. You know, the things he did in the World Series and everything, it was just amazing, to, you know, to watch. And he was, uh, that was another thing that one time I was doing an interview with Nettles and I, you know, he's like, just quick, uh, you know, flash answers. I said, what's the best thing about being a Yankee? And he said, watching Reggie Jackson every day. I said, what's the worst thing about being a Yankee? He said, watching Reggie Jackson every day. <laughs> it was just like, uh, you know, you never knew what Reggie was going to do and what he was going to say, but he, he brought the pressure on himself. Managers, you talk about pressure. There's nothing like being a Yankee manager for pressure. I want to run through a few of these guys, but first of all, Yogi Berra, who is just such a nice guy, so well-respected across baseball, really a historical figure, and yet he was treated pretty crummy, wasn't he? I mean, for a guy that really uh, should have been considered Yankee royalty, uh, he had some rough times in that role. Oh, yeah, when he dealt with Steinberg, that was one thing when Yogi was not only loved but respected by everybody for what he had done and for the type of person he was. And, you know, when he when Steinbrenner made him the manager, he wound up treating him, you know, just like he treated everybody else, you know, with very little respect at the time. And there was a story in the 85, 88, I'm sorry, 84 season where Steinbrenner called the meeting of the manager and the coaches, executives, and because, you know, things were going bad and, and he kept blaming everybody else for decisions he had made. And he kept referring, he kept saying to Yogi, you know, this is your team, you're this, you, you, you wanted this. And Yogi, who was a very low-key, soft-spoken guy, finally he had a pack of cigarettes and he finally just stood up around the big conference table, flung the pack of cigarettes at Steinbrenner, hitting him in the chest and, and went into a whole vulgar tirade about this is your bleeping team. It's not my bleeping team. It's your bleeping team. And, and Steinbrenner and, and Yogi just kind of stormed out of the meeting. And after he left, Steinbrenner just looked around and said, wow, the losing really must be getting to him. But and then, of course, he said in, in 85 in spring training, which was Yogi, the beginning of Yogi's second season as, as manager, he said, Yogi's going to hit me here the full season, win or lose. And, of course, that, that promise lasted for 16 games, and he fired him after 16 games. We'll be back with Moss Klein, who covered the New York Yankees for the Newark Star-Ledger for 17 seasons in just a moment. You're listening to Sports and Tours with Stephen Manchin. And there's a cut to miss. Two up and two down. That one disappeared. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. 
Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You are listening to former sports writer from the Newark Star-Ledger and co-author of Damn Yankees, Moss Klein. Wow. But you know, Yogi Berra, for him to throw a tirade, that just was nothing. I mean, you know about us both as a player and as a manager and so forth. It wasn't him. So, I mean, you had to do something to get him that angry. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, you know, when he got fired, Steinbrenner didn't even, wasn't even the one to tell him. He had the... Uh, the general manager at the time, uh, Clyde King, who of course was also a manager and pitching coach and everything else, but he had. It was a game in Chicago, and after the game, Yogi was just informed by by Clyde King that he was being fired, and that's when Yogi said he's not going back to Yankee Stadium as long as George Steinbrenner owns the team. And Yogi was a big attraction, and it that went on for years and years. Yogi would not go back. They kept trying to get him to come back, and finally, it was one of the very few times where Steinbrenner was the one who kind of caved in and and it worked out Steinbrenner made a special visit to the Yogi Berra Museum in New Jersey to to go see him and talk to him into coming back to being a Yankee again and that was but this went on for 10 or 12 years after he got fired well the Billy Martin thing always interested me because you had to just see that coming. I mean, Billy Martin had a hard time getting along in perfect situations, like when he right. in Minnesota, Detroit, Oakland, and, and yet going back there. But I, I guess it was just two two people that just kind of had to add, had to get at it, right? I mean, it was both their personalities. Oh yeah, they were. It just they couldn't stay away from each other. I mean, it was at the time. This will sound kind of old, but at the time we used to joke it was like the Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton. They just kept getting married and divorced and married and divorced. There was. You know, the, the one the one way to look at it is, I remember saying once that it's really like all those years, Billy was the Yankee manager. He just would take breaks periodically and someone else would fill in. But every time Billy was fired, it was only a matter of days before you would start saying, well, he's coming back again. And of course, there was that famous old timers day where he had just been fired and were resigned five days earlier. And then he here he is, you know, being announced at old timers day as the manager for not the next season, but the season after that, <laughs> it was just that was all part of the part of the circus. But yeah, Billy was, uh, you know, was as much of a character and as Steinbrenner was, so it was quite a quite a combination. I want to get your feel of, of of hanging around there. When I think of Billy Martin, I, I got to know him uh, when he managed the A's in '81. And he was a unique guy, you know. You had to be careful what you said. If there was ever anybody in baseball that I was kind of afraid of, it might have been Billy mm-hmm. Martin. <laughs> Did you get oh, that no, feeling about him? He could have that effect. He could definitely have that effect. I tell you, he was an incredibly good game manager. I mean, he was just so many steps ahead of everybody. Even Tony La Russa, who, of course, is in the Hall of Fame as a manager, he said he never saw a game manager as good as Billy. But the problem was Billy couldn't manage himself. I mean, he just, you know, the same pattern every time. And, you know, I got along great with Billy, and I really enjoyed being around him. I mean, each each time he came back, you know, I, I was getting a little bit older, and, you know, spending the times in the bar with him was getting to be a little more difficult. When I first started, I was he was the manager, and I was like 25, 26 years old, and I said, this is great. I'd hang out in the bar with him, and he'd 
tip me off to different things. And and then he come back. He came back the second time, the third. By the time he got to be the fifth time, I said, I don't think I can spend this much time in the bar anymore. But we had a great relationship. When I first started covering the team in 1976, that was his first full season. I, I came along. There was mostly veteran writers at the time of the other papers. And the first time I went in to see Billy, I was kind of nervous. And, you know, I introduced myself. And he said, he said let's look, put it this way. He said, the other guys have been around. I've had problems with them. He said, we're starting clean. So let me just tell you. He said, if you're fair to me, I'll be fair to you. I had a lot of problems with Steinbrenner along the way just because he didn't like my, I guess, sarcasm in writing about some of the things he did. But it helped my relationship with Billy. So yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. You ever find it fascinating? You, know, you said you, you, you saw him in the bars and stuff. What used to amaze me was a lot of times he'd be minding his own business and people want to come over and mess with him, which I, I never understood because he, unless you you just want trouble. But, you know, leave yeah. the guy alone, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, well. You know, it got to be where it was almost like, uh, you know, the gunslinger had come into the, you know, Old West bar and people wanted to challenge him. And, I mean, I was with him numerous times where people would, would come over, I mean, and just be kind of like, you know, yeah, you screwed this up or something. It was almost like people were trying to provoke him. And, you know, it didn't take a lot to provoke him. I, I told him a few times, why don't we go away from the hotel? Because he always used to go to the hotel bar. And I'd say, why don't we go, you know, take a cab, go someplace else where there won't be all these people around. He says, he goes, no, he says, this is where I am. I'm, this is where I'm staying. He says, I'm not going to leave because of them. And people really would, you know, provoke him. I mean, he, Billy had so many different sides to him. It was, you know, he could be so charming and so much fun. I remember, you know, he took care of a couple times. My girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, was, would be with me on trips and you know, certain, like in Boston, and Billy would, he, like, appointed himself his, her, uh, her babysitter until I got done and got back to the bar, and she said he was, like, the most pleasant, charming person. So, he, he Billy could do everything. Yeah, it was, you know, that was a nice thing about him. The, the other part about him that was appealing was, if you're a fan, it always kind of bothers you when you see, like, ballplayers, ah, eh, they don't care what happens. With Billy, you knew that if they lost, he was going to be more mad than anybody else. I mean, that was just oh, yeah. automatic. That was it. Everybody had to be, you really, people, I think a lot of the writers didn't understand, Billy needed a cooling off period, and, and you know, the game would end, and he'd be steaming if, they, if, they, if there was a loss, and... Guys would come in, start asking questions, and right away he'd get you know nasty, and it would you know deteriorate from there. But Billy wanted to win, and he wanted to be the Yankee manager. And he, all of his other jobs, when he, you know, he he had great short-term success with you know the A's and with Detroit and Minnesota and Texas. But it was only it, it's almost like it didn't really count unless he was doing it with the Yankees. That's he wanted to be with the Yankees, and that was Steinbrenner's hold over him because Steinbrenner, you know, could decide whether he was going to be the manager of the Yankees or not. So that was their their kind of like trap that they were in together. Well, one thing Steinbrenner liked to do was trade some free agents. So if you don't mind, tell me what you think the best trades or trades were and, and the worst ones, because I know there was, there was both. Steinbrenner recognized the beauty of free agency before the other owners did. And he knew that if he brought in the top players, no matter what he was paying them, it would he would make it back in ticket sales and, and publicity. And he just went for the bet. I mean, he, he was the one who swooped in before the actual free agency started when that 
Catfish Hunter had that clause that deal with that Charlie Finley reneged on and became a free agent. You know, all of, almost every team in baseball was making offers, and Steinbrenner, who was behind the scenes then because he was serving a suspension, uh, he's the one who swooped in and, and got Catfish Hunter. And, of course, a couple years later, he got uh, Reggie Jackson. He got Goose Gossage. Now, he was great at bringing in free agents. He was not so great at making trades because he wanted established players at the expense of giving up prospects. And a lot of times those backfire. You deal for uh, an established older player who only has a couple good years left and you give up some, you know, great prospects. I mean, of course, he traded, you know, Jay Buhner for for Ken Phelps. He traded Doug Drabeck. He traded Jose Rio. He traded, there were there was just a whole line of, of you know, top prospects that he, he traded. Uh, Willie McGee, who became an MVP for St. Louis for a pitcher who never pitched after the trade was made. Uh, it was his, his, some of his trades were, were just, uh, he, he had no confidence in unproven players, even if everyone else would tell him that they were great prospects. So, uh, a couple times he luckily for the Yankees was talked out of making certain trades. He was going to trade, um, uh, Ron Guidry at one time before Guidry became, you know, the big star. And Gabe Paul, Gidry was going to be like a throw-in in a trade. And and uh, Gabe Paul, who was the general manager then, said to Steinbrenner, he said, you're not trading Gidry. He says, over my dead body. And luckily for Gabe, Steinbrenner didn't take him up on that. And he kept Gidry, and, and Gidry became, you know, you know, a star. Well, Moss, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. We've just released our brand-new website, sportsracks.com. It's sportsracx.com which features all of our shows, an expanded podcast, a new blog, and more. You don't want to miss it. And you can also follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.